go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor at EAA for print and digital content and publications. With me today on my left. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And, uh, and joining us via the magic of Skype is uh, someone who was once described online as a soldier of fortune of vintage aircraft, which I thought was just <laughs> Just absolutely perfect. Otherwise known as the man I want to be when I grow up. Uh, vintage uh, pilot, restorer, expert, extraordinaire, Andrew King. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Glad to be here. And I, 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 there's, you know that old joke about pilots and growing up? <laughs> well, yes. yes. <laughs> you can only do one. Right, you, you got to pick one. Yep. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I'll never be you, but I'll have fun trying. Fair enough. <laughs> so, Andrew, um <clears throat> Let's just dive right in. You're one of those guys who who has uh, had the, the 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 privilege and and has, has worked his whole life to to be involved in vintage aviation and and uh, to fly an enviable number and and variety of types. But uh, let's uh, let's start with you as a as a kid. You know, you grew up around old Rhinebeck. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. My my dad and my uncle were both involved at Rhinebeck almost since the beginning. Rhinebeck started about 1959. And uh, my uncle moved to Hyde Park, which was nearby, uh, I think about like 64 or something like that. And my dad moved to the area around uh, uh, the same time. And uh, so they were both involved from about 1965, 1966. Uh, and the airdrome and my dad actually flew air shows there until, well, until he was 80 years old. And then the insurance company said, we won't insure you for air shows anymore. So he flew around 40 years of air shows at Rhinebeck. But uh, but I grew up there washing airplanes and, you know, gopher carrying gas cans and stuff. And uh, for 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 what we like, uh, as far as aviation goes, it was, of course, an idyllic place to grow up. Absolutely. You guys had a tiger moth in the family, right? Yeah, my dad and my uncle had a tiger moth in partnership for many years. And then uh, they sold that and my dad bought a tiger moth of his own, which is still at Rhinebeck. My brother still flies at Rhinebeck and uh, he has the tiger moth now. My dad passed away in 2015 in uh uh, February 2015, but uh, uh, but yeah, we uh, we were longtime tiger moth people. Uh, well, you know, you're you're among friends here, of course. Uh, right, so, Hal is a tiger moth guy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So now you uh, you soloed uh, right when you were 16. Is that right? I actually soloed before I learned to drive. Yeah, <laughs> I soloed up in Hampton, New Hampshire. Uh, they had a flying school up there where they had three three Piper Cubs, three Aronka Champs, and two Cessna 170s. And of course, wanted to learn to fly in a cub. My dad had get, my dad had a cub also at the time, and I had flown with him some, uh, so I had a little bit of a head start. But I went up to Hampton, and in fact, uh, the cub I soloed in was seven zero zero six Hotel, and it's still there. And wow! I, I think they for many years they rented it out. I don't think they rent it out anymore for instruction, but I think it has like fourteen thousand hours on it now. <laughs> That's but, fantastic. Uh, but yeah, soloed in a cub. It's just a mile from the from the Atlantic Ocean in New Hampshire, and uh, did my cross country work in a champ. And then my dad had a Cessna 140A that I did my radio work and uh, some of the other stuff in, got the license in. Sandra, you, you know, you you kind of touched on something that we keep talking about on here is uh, we may forget uh, old girlfriend's phone numbers and things like that, but you never forget the end number of the airplane you first soloed. <laughs> I heard, yeah, I heard, I listened to this uh, Stephen uh, uh, Hinton thing and heard you guys talking about the first airplanes, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Wow. Now, did you fly... Uh, so I mean, you grew up around Old Rhinebeck. For those who don't know, when we say Old Rhinebeck, uh, it's this—it's almost—it's a religious experience to go up uh, to this this place that was started by Cole Palin, uh, where they were restoring and flying World War II and, and Golden Age aircraft and, and air shows. Um, World War One. Or that's what I mean. World War One. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yep. Yep. Uh, it's just—it's magical. There's nothing else you can say about that. I mean, uh, would you agree with that, Andrew? Well, you know, it was the kind of place where you, if you were smart, you reminded yourself of how lucky you were every so often to be around there because uh, to grow up there, I, I got to fly five seasons of air shows there, but it was almost better in the early days as a kid and being around there, there were kind of larger than life characters there, Stanley Segala and Dave Fox and 
Uh, of course, my uncle and my dad and Cole Palin himself, of course. But, uh, you know, in the early days in the 70s, there weren't as many rules to worry about. And <laughs> there were some crazy things that happened. And it was just uh, Cole was a was a fantastic character and a, and a great, uh, you know, a leader of people and uh, wanted to get people, other people involved and, and young people. He loved to get young people involved. And uh, it was a fantastic place to grow up and get dressed up in World War One uniforms and things and and drop fake bombs from airplanes on <laughs> sir percy goodfellow and trudy true love i mean it, it was a terrific place to grow up it really was and, and it you know it's opened doors i think for ever since i think a lot of the opportunities that i've had in the years since i was there drove, go back to that if you tell people well, i grew up at rhinebeck or i flew airplanes at rhinebeck you know it uh, there's a certain legitimacy that that goes with that but yeah it was a it was a terrific place to grow up and they stay uh, they stay busy for the entire summer season. This is not a place that has an annual air show. Uh, this is what two shows a weekend for for months, right? Middle of June to the middle of October is the air show season. That is yeah, every uh, Saturday and Sunday, the middle of June. The Saturday shows are a little bit more focused on barnstorming, and the Sunday shows are a little bit more focused on World War One airplanes. Man, I just know my uh, my mind was blown when I uh, I finally made the pilgrimage there. About uh, I suspend fifteen years now already. Uh, since that that very first trip, but uh, you know, why didn't I just pack my things and go camp in the forest when <laughs> I was a little kid? But yeah, yeah, uh, that's how a lot of people get involved there by just going there and kind of deciding to stay. And and if you were enthusiastic enough, you ended up being a part of the crowd and and getting involved in the shows and the ground crew and so on and so forth. But I, yeah, it's about a hundred miles north of New York City and uh, Hudson Valley beautiful spot but but yeah it was a it was a great beginning to kind of what's ended up being the life i've led <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, you did your first air show you were still a teenager technically weren't you weren't you 19 when you started flying shows uh yeah i was 19 i i my birthday's the end of may and at that time the air show started at uh, the middle of may so i flew a couple of shows before i turned 20 and uh the following year i got to fly the Fokker triplane before i turned 21 so that was uh wow. that was quite a wow yeah, yeah that was quite an accomplishment i have for a 20 year old kid you know now i have to ask and at some point you did learn to drive correct i did learn to drive <laughs> you, you did yes. finally get around uh, to that my wife doesn't like riding with me but uh if we were going on a long trip i get to sit in the right seat because she <laughs> she doesn't like the way i drive <laughs> but, uh, but yes i did learn to drive eventually oh that's fantastic so i know after uh after Rhinebeck, you've uh, um, you've done all kinds of things. I don't know how one uh, describes your career. You're just you're you're just one of those guys that uh, if you're into vintage aviation, eventually we run across your name or your work or, or some connection. Um, you you did some work for Kermit Weeks for a while, isn't that correct? Yeah, I worked. I, I used to tell people that every even-numbered year, I moved at least 800 miles. But uh, I haven't done that in a while. But after college, I did that for a few times. But I, I went to work for Kermit in 1990, and uh, he didn't really have anybody. The, the, the other guys that were working there were more into the Warbirds, and uh, so I kind of took care of his Golden Age airplanes and his World War One airplanes. But I was there from, uh, I think, January of 1990 until August of 92, which, of course, was Hurricane Andrew, which uh, oh, destroyed my apartment and tore the place down. And, uh, you know, that was uh, I, I kind of had enough of Florida at that point. <laughs> it is kind so. of how nature says it's time for another 800 mile move, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Destroying right, your apartment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but but another great experience, you know. Obviously, there's Kermit is an interesting character, and uh, you know, I had a lot of interesting. I, I had several rides in the Mosquito, that's oh, now a Doshkosh, wow. the A Museum. Uh, yeah, I, that's when, whenever I'm with people and people start talking about, well, I had a ride in this. I pretty much can always win because I can say, well, I had a ride in the Mosquito, so that, <laughs> that pretty much. That is <laughs> really really hard to beat. I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. There's a handful of astronauts around who 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 might win uh, win a bet at a bar, but otherwise. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> wow, that's, oh, that's amazing! And now, and I want to make sure I get his uh, pronunciation right. Uh, you had a, you had a chance in some time to work with Javier Arango. Uh, I worked briefly. Yeah, one summer I worked out for Javier for for one summer, and I got to fly some of the airplanes out there. Uh, I flew the rotary engine Newport Twenty Eight uh, that wow. that unfortunately he was killed in, and uh, the Fokker D Seven, uh, the SE Five. Uh, a number of the different airplanes. Javier, just a terrific guy. Really, uh, really, really missed in the in the World War One airplane world and the h historic aviation world. You know, there's something that that 
I guess maybe I was a uh, uh, not knowledgeable on until a few years ago when I got to work uh, on a World War One project here, uh, and you know through things like seeing the aircraft at Old Rhinebeck and Kermit was that uh, the World War One pilots. I mean, they, talk about brave. I mean, these guys were you know taking airplanes that not only were not pressurized, didn't have cockpits, you know, uh, <laughs> or at least you know windows and roofs and stuff, and they're they're going up to air you know to altitudes uh, extremely high with no oxygen. You know, the oil's just going right back in their face. And, I mean, the airplanes are mainly constructed out of wood and, and fabric. And uh, talk about being brave. I mean, those guys were just amazing. Yeah, I, the, in, a, in a sense, that's true. And, and in another sense, of course, I, I always tell people that in 1917, to a, to a pilot at the front of 1917, looking at a Sopwith Camel, that was the way you and I look at an F-18. Yeah, that's so, very I mean, true. It, 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 bravery may not have been so much as thrilled. I mean, it was a thrill. Imagine going in 1918, going a hundred miles an hour, yeah. you know, it was, and going to 10,000 feet or 15,000 feet. I, I, I they, they certainly were brave pilots. Uh, there was certainly a certain intestinal fortitude that they had, but I think it also was a terrific thrill for them to, to soar over the earth like that. When you think about, you know, somebody like Richthofen starting in the cavalry, so starting on a horse, and yeah. then you know, and then going into aviation from there, and things like that, and 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 I guess when when you look back uh, on, uh, for want of a better term, of all the jobs you could have had in the armed forces <laughs> in World War One, pilot right. had to be pretty high up there in terms of maybe not necessarily overall survivability, but boy, you know, get, let me take my chances in a in a camel than put me in a a, a trench for years. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, that's it. They always talk about the poor bloody infantry and the guys in the trenches and looking right. up at the the pilots flying over. You know, the beginning of the Blue Max. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That kind of, kind of captures that. But uh, uh, yeah, de yeah, definitely, it was a, certainly a, a cleaner war, I guess, if you can call it that. But uh, but but yeah, great. So most of them, when they were kids, they didn't even they weren't even cars around when they were kids. So, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And you wonder what uh, what those pilots would think. Uh, that that a hundred plus years on, there's still groups like Rhinebeck and like Golden Age Aero Museum and things like this that are, you know, either recreating these airplanes where possible using original engines and things like that, and and commemorating them and being able to, you know, to take tiny slices of what was their daily reality, their their daily lives, and and bring them out for to sort of entertain and educate and inform. Yeah, you know, one of the great things about Rhinebeck was. Of course, in the 70s, a lot of those guys were still alive, and they used to come visit Rhinebeck. And I've met George Vaughn and Ray Brooks and uh, uh, Ken Porter and a number of the aces. In fact, we used to have a big banquet at the end of the year, and almost every year, four or five of those guys would show up and uh, sometimes stand up. I can remember Ken Porter telling a story about Frank Luke, the famous balloon buster. and uh, They had a big party, and the, Ken Porter talking about Frank Luke standing on the bar and saying that the Germans would never take him alive, which, of course, is the legend. Uh, it might be a myth. I don't know, but right. it's but it's the legend of Frank Luke is that he he died. He, he was shot down behind enemy lines and pulled out a six-shooter and started shooting at the Germans coming at him until they shot back and killed him. So, you know, Ken Porter kind of supported that. But that was one of the really neat things about growing up at Rhinebeck in the 70s was meeting some of those guys. And uh, Cole would very often would take them up in the fleet or, or uh, one of the other aerodrome airplanes and let them fly a little bit. And, uh, you know, obviously it was a great thrill for those guys. And, you know, it's uh, I hate to say it, but it's not going to be too many more years uh, when we're going to be telling stories of getting to meet some of the, the World War II greats and and how many of uh, and how many of them we've already lost. And, of course, so many more will be gone uh, with each uh, with each passing year. Um, but the fact yeah. that you had the chance to, to meet World War One pilots is is uh, is astounding. That almost I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but in my mind, Andrew, that almost just sort of creates a, an unbroken connection uh, between you and the sort of the airplanes that you've been involved with in your your uh, your life, starting as a teenager and now as an adult, a connection to you and uh, and that that era. There's there's something powerful about that that uh, you know you're not just sort of recreating flying this airplane or that uh, based on something you read in a book you've actually tangibly met and been in the same room as some of these guys that's powerful 
I think you're right. I think you're. I mean, I, you know, again, back in those days, I think there were still people alive who, who had known people who fought in the Civil War. They were long dead, of course. <laughs> wow. But you know, when I was a kid, my grandpa, you know, kind of thing, and so uh, that kind of created a connection to that. And I think you're right that it does create a little bit of a. I do feel that way of a connection to World War One still. That is really, really powerful. So um, let's talk about uh, sort of vintage aircraft as a whole. Um, do you keep a, a tally of uh, the number of different types you've flown? I do. I, I, I try to be careful not to exaggerate it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, I know people that they've flown a J3C and a J3L and a J3F. That's three different types, and I put them all the same. You know, I've, I've, I've flown a Franklin Cub, which is pretty rare, I think. But uh, So I try not to you know, artificially expand it, sure. but, uh, but I'm up to 141, wow. uh, the, at this point, uh, I went out to West Virginia a couple of weeks ago and picked up a Porterfield LP 65, uh, 1940 Porterfield and flew it back here to Virginia for the new owner. And that was number 141. Wow. So, uh, and I've, I've owned, I don't know, four or five airplanes I've owned. So obviously, you know, a lot of that is uh, the, the bulk of it is, is the generosity of people. Some of them were hired things, but, uh, but an awful lot of those types were somebody that said, Hey, go fly my airplane. And, and, you know, the generosity of friends and sometimes even strangers. So it's, uh, uh you know, that's a good, it's another good thing about the vintage airplane hobby is the kind of the camaraderie and the, and that kind of thing going on. Is there a, is there one that stands out for you that is maybe your favorite or or just the one you had uh, maybe sort of more affection for? I I, I knew you were going to ask my favorite. <laughs> it's so cruel. Everybody, it's a terrible question. Everybody but always does. You got to try. <laughs> yeah. Every well, no, every you know everybody always does. And the interesting thing is, I used to have trouble answering. I used to not really have a clear cut favorite. Uh, about uh, three or four years ago, Joe Santana here in Virginia hired me to go to San Diego and ferry his Booker Youngman back to Virginia for him. And so, uh, you know, in about five or six days, I put, I don't know, 25, 30 hours on a Booker Youngman. And that's the, that's my clear answer now. It's, I'd love to fly a Youngmeister. They say the Youngmeister is even better. But but the Booker Youngman is my is my favorite. If I had to own one airplane, I, I recently bought a Traveler, but because I want to do a biplane rides business. Otherwise, I wouldn't have even looked for anything but a Booker Youngman. Uh, that's that's really the favorite. Uh, some of the others, the Fokker triplane stands out. I, I always tell people it wasn't really fun to fly, but I really liked it. Uh, you know, and people say, what's the what's the worst airplane you've ever flown? And I, I always preempt that by saying it doesn't mean I didn't like it. But you know, <laughs> the, the 1911 Curtis Pusher was a terrible, terrible airplane to fly. And, and I, I, you know, in calm wind, it wasn't so bad. But I always told people if the wind was more blowing more than about seven or eight miles an hour and you flew for half an hour, at some point you'd be scared. Uh, wow. But but again, not just not to say that I didn't like it. You know? sure. So yep. and of course, I, I and I, I know the one that the, the auto jar with the Pitcairn Auto Gyro, the 1932 Pitcairn Auto Gyro, uh, that is that might be kind of the pinnacle of my flying experience. I tell people that the Auto Gyro was the only magic airplane that I've ever flown because people that knew nothing about airplanes seemed to be fascinated by it, and uh, it, it just it just seemed to draw people, and it just there was something magical about the auto gyro. They could, people could tell that it's, it's not an airplane. It's not a helicopter. You know, it's clearly old. It just, uh, it just had a fascination for people in general. And it was, and it was a great flying experience, really unique flying experience. So that, that's, that may be the peak of, of my career so far. And I will never forget, uh, you bringing that into Pioneer Airport here in Oshkosh about a month before Air Venture or so back in, uh, 2009, so I had just started working here, and I was living over in our Air Academy Lodge uh, until my wife could move out we could get a place. And so, in effect, I, I, I'd been working at EA a month, and, you know, here around the, kind of around sunset, it seemed, late, in one, late one afternoon, I'm able to walk out into, quote-unquote, my yard, and a Pitcairn Auto Gyro lands on the grass. <laughs> and if there was a sign from the universe that said, you did the right thing, you're in the right place, you took the right job, you know, that was, uh, that was it. So whatever other benefits, whatever other reasons uh, you had for bringing, bringing the auto gyro here, um, know that I took it personally and that that was clearly the most important thing was, uh, was come and send well, Hal a sign. You know, a lot of people, I think, reacted like that. And the, uh, the first person to walk up to it, when I shut the engine off on Pioneer Field, the first person to walk up to the cockpit was Paul Pobresny. Uh, wow. And uh, it was about 7.30 or 8 o'clock, I think. On a, I don't remember which day of the week it was now, but... Uh, uh, you know, it was it, 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 like I say, it, I, at Oshkosh, when we flew it during AirVenture, 
uh, they they had blanked off a time first just before eight o'clock before the airport closed uh, to allow me to fly it and and I remember we had a hard time getting it started and we got it started a little before eight and I think after I landed I heard somebody I think the tower came on and said what time is it at eight o'clock I think it was five after eight and they lied so that we weren't you know we were up <laughs> the rules or something but uh, I, I remember they had set aside a plot of grass for me to land I didn't like landed it on pavement and they had set aside a plot of grass off the south end of three six. Uh, for me to land on. And I can remember I, I landed and I was taxiing back along the taxiway and people were running out to the flight line and I could hear people cheering as I, as I went past. Wow. And it's it just, you know, it was the effect that the airplane seemed to have on people. And I, I went to a party later that night, way back in the campground. And they were telling me that the party was going full swing by the time I flew. And when somebody saw the autogyro in the air, they ran up to the band and said, stop, stop, stop. So they wanted to listen <laughs> and, and hear the kinder and hear the rotor blades and stuff. And and, you know, they stopped the whole party so they could watch the autogyro fly. So, so again, it's just, it was magic. It was a magic airplane. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, about how you sort of checked yourself out to, to fly that aircraft? Because it's, you know, the controls are, are I guess, maybe more analogous to a typical classic uh, fixed-wing airplane, even though not the same, uh, certainly than a helicopter, but you didn't have any gyro time, at least when you first set out to do this, uh, if I remember right. Well, yeah, no, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I went to Alabama to a guy named Dauphin Fritz down in Alabama who had a, a flying school for gyroplanes, gyrocopters, the modern gyrocopters, and so I went down there and got my rating, but of course it's a very different animal from a modern gyrocopter to the Pitcairn Autogyro. And uh, so I had I got the rating, but a little bit of it did carry over, uh, but but not a lot of it. And I always told people Johnny Miller, of course, uh, everybody knows the famous autogyro pilot Johnny Miller he used to come to Oshkosh in his Bonanza, and he died less than a year before we flew before we test flew. Uh, the PA-18 in Ohio. And then, of course, Steve Pitcairn, who was who was very involved with the AA also, uh, he died within less, less than a year before we flew it. And so I, I told people after I flew it, then I knew all the questions and there was nobody to ask them to anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Why is it doing that? You know, but but we had read stuff and we we learned the hard way. Sometimes uh, we, we read original accounts of things and uh, kind of figured stuff out, and, and as I say we learned the hard way. The the first taxi test that we did, uh, we had read that the rotor blades were more stable if they were turning than if they were stationary, and so we I unlocked the rotor blades and had them turning, but it turned out that they need to be turning at least 65 RPM to really be stable. We had a little bit of a wind blow, and we got rotor flap, and the and the rotor actually struck the top of the tail, oh, and so uh, that was 2008. See, that set us back a year from going to Oshkosh. Uh, we ended up having to take the, we took the rotor blades off and, and had to repair them and, and check them out and repair the top of the fin and rudder and stuff. Uh, so that was one of the hard lessons we learned, but, uh, uh, you know, eventually we kind of got it figured out and it, it was, it was quite a moment. It was at New Carlisle, Ohio, which is North of Dayton. It's about, uh, 2000 feet, 2100 foot. Uh, they have a grass runway and a paved runway and, at, to go out at the end of the runway uh, on the first day that we flew it and to open the throttle with the idea of flying, you know, it was quite a moment. Uh, I, it's, I told people it was like uh, it was like a prehistoric pterodactyl flew down and grabbed you and took off with you. You know, there's a lot of crazy, a lot of crazy flapping stuff hap happening over your head and you weren't really sure what, you know. <laughs> But uh, and, and it didn't have the takeoff performance that I kind of expected from watching Miss Champion. Miss Champion, of course, with 300 horsepower, uh, really leaps off the ground. This one with 100 and 160 horsepower, it, it didn't really leap off the ground. And we had a prop with a little bit too much pitch, we figured out later. Uh, and I was, I was actually just about to abort the takeoff when it broke ground. And so, you know, then you're in the air and, uh, you know, you're running out of runway. You're kind of committed. you got to keep going. But uh, it really was it really was a fantastic moment when it finally flew and it actually flew nice when it got up to cruise speed. Man, the ailerons worked really well. And uh, it, it actually was a fairly nice flying airplane up in the air. But uh, again, I told people everything above 10 feet was easy, but below 10 feet was where the critical point was when you were descending. When you got to 10 feet coming into land, you were committed and, and you better be going straight. If you're going crooked and landed sideways, you're liable to tip it over. Uh, but so you really had to have everything set up. You couldn't have much of a crosswind. We were really limited to less than five mile an hour crosswind probably 
with it. And so that took a lot of planning to fly it from Ohio to Oshkosh, took a lot of planning and trying to find airports with grass runways and if possible, multiple runways. And uh, so it was, you know, you really, you didn't want to hurt it. You really didn't want to hurt it. If something was wrong, it wasn't, in you know, 1932, you could call the factory and say, send us four rotor blades. And of course, if we had a problem, it was a year and a half to rebuild them. But, uh, but great, great. I had about, I got about 50 hours in it. And of course it was sold to Kermit Weeks and it's down there now. And uh, I checked him out in it and he flew it better than I did. But uh, I don't think they've flown it since. It went out of annual eventually and he's got so many projects going on. I don't think he's flown it since. But, uh, but yeah, that was that was probably the pinnacle of my flying experiences. Oh, what a kick. <laughs> now, I mean, obviously now we're talking about vintage aircraft. And I just wanted to, to ask you, you know, A, what drew you to liking and wanting to fly vintage airplanes? And, um, you know, why do you think it's important to keep them preserved and flying? Well, of course, my dad really drew me to it. Uh, although it's interesting, my brother wasn't really into airplanes until he was 30. But I just, from a from a very young age, that was really all I wanted to do uh, was, was fly old airplanes. And, uh, you know, the the technology, history of technology has its own fascination of going from here to there. And of course the 20th century is amazing going from bicycles to the moon, basically. Uh, and of course the characters, you know, the people that were involved, the Wright brothers and Glenn Curtis and the world war one pilots and Charles Lindbergh. And, uh, I just, I've always been fascinated with history and to be able to to be able to read a book, say about an airmail pilot flying in the winter across Pennsylvania in an open cockpit, and having done it, you know, and I, I, so this is what it felt like, you know, it's uh, it's that's that's part of the interest of it too, to kind of be able to read those accounts and have a greater understanding of what those people were talking about. That's part of the fascination with it, and the 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 value of it is a good question, and I, I'm sure. You guys have heard the debate about the worries about history in general and historical things and antique cars and antique airplanes, that it seems to be an aging population and there seems to be less and less young people involved. And so you, you kind of wonder what what is what's the value of it? And, you know, I, some of the value of it is when I when I get on an airliner, I mean, I can go down to Dulles Airport and get on an airliner and five hours from now I'll be in Los Angeles. And and that's amazing to me because I know I've done it in a in a. 70 year old airplane too and i know how long it took back then and so to be able to compare give give perspective i mean perspective is something that that you know might some people would say is lacking in our society in general i suppose and that's the that's the importance of history is it gives you perspective and makes you appreciate what you have and uh you know it just gives you a a better worldview i think to to be able to experience some of the stuff and most of pilots Again, you'll agree with me and you know these people and most pilots like to share it. Everybody loves giving airplane rides and telling stories about the airplanes and the people and stuff. And so, you know, that has its value, too, of course. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, stories, that gives us a nice little segue here. Um, You and I first uh, first met, first crossed paths uh, after uh, after I saw a film called Barnstorming. And then had gotten to be friends with uh, with Paul Glenshaw, one of the, the one of the directors. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you got involved in that or that film, or how that film came about? Yeah, that uh, you know, I, I recently listened to your movie episode. This is the number two movie episode, talking about Waldo Pepper, and of course at Rhinebeck growing up, and, and most of the crowds I've ever been involved with, you can quote Waldo Pepper endlessly. You can sit around for an hour and do <laughs> Waldo Pepper quotes, and everybody knows and trivia about Waldo Pepper. Uh, and and so we like to think we're the Waldo Peppers of today. And my friend Frank Pavliga in Ohio, who's a big Pete and Paul guy, and we fly around together and do stuff. And we like to land in farmers' fields, which uh, you know, uh, my my Taylorcraft's been in a lot of just plain old hay fields out in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and all over the place. And the the Pete and Paul that I have now, the same thing. And if we're flying along and we see a nice looking hay field, we're liable to go land in it just for the fun of it. Uh, so we were coming back, actually coming back from Oshkosh in 1999. We'd had the Pete and Pauls up there for the would have been the 70th anniversary of the Pete and Paul. Uh, in fact, this year is the 90th, and we're we're hoping to have a big crowd of Pete and Pauls at uh, Air Venture this year also. But in '99 was the 70th, and we were coming back, and we saw this nice looking hay field, and Frank and I landed there. Uh, another friend of ours, Will Graff, was with us, and he landed there also. And the farmers came out, and uh, a couple of pickup trucks came into the field. And the farmer came along, and we were a little worried that 
he might not like it that we'd landed in his field. And uh, so I told him the engine, it was overheating. I lied a little bit, told him the engine was overheating. But anyway, uh, we got talking and Frank took a couple of kids for rides. And uh, Matt, the farmer said, boy, you guys should come back next year. We'll do a little cookout for you. And uh, this year will be the uh, 20th year. We've been going back the last few years. Uh, people from all over the, the surrounding area come and bring food and stuff. I, we've had close to 200 people there. The, the farmers and the people that live in town uh, come out and, and they have, like I say, a big kind of a potluck dinner. And uh, we do a little aerial display for them. We do like a toilet paper cut and do uh, balloon busting and flower bombing and stuff uh, for a little uh, flying activity and give rides. Uh, we had two new standards there one year giving rides. And uh, just going around, it was it was like 1935. It was in a in a real farmer's field, and two new standards, and a line of people, and they people loading them in the airplanes, and then they go twice around the patch and land. And I mean, it was it was another it was a time warp. It was just like being in 1935. It was really cool. Well, I, I think it was uh, it was excellent because I could understand how, um, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that you wouldn't want to grow beyond a certain size, or somehow become too formalized or something like that um what i thought was uh you know the, the great about the film was that i think i it captured everything that you were just talking about um without uh without really sort of overblowing it or inserting necessarily any really manufactured reality show drama or anything like that it was just a it's uh it, it's just a, a a very sweet very wholesome it's almost innocent look at uh, um, at just a, a wonderful, friendly encounter that anybody would would love to be a part of. Yeah, really, it, it's kind of about people more than airplanes yeah. or anything else. And I mean, the airplanes provide a, uh, maybe a spectacle or a, the the flavor to it. Uh, but yeah, the airplanes and the farm and everything—it's it, another project. Uh, I'm 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 kind of proud, not so much of myself, but but of uh, Paul Glanshaw and Brian Reichardt who made it because it does it captures some kind of an intangible thing that it just appeals to people. Uh, I was at Oshkosh one time, and uh, a couple a young couple came up to me with a couple little kids. Uh, I was standing in front of an airplane I'd flown in, and uh, the the they looked at me. Like I should know who they were, and I, <laughs> I didn't know who they were, and the and the wife looked a little confused, and the husband said to the wife, "Your favorite movie, remember?" And she then she lit up, she recognized then who I was, and she said to me, she said, "You know," she said, "We watched that movie and we cried like babies," she said, <laughs> wow. and she said we watched it the next night and we cried again. So, you know, it's real. It's, it's kind of what people want maybe America to be or society to be or something, but right. It just captures two different groups of people getting together. And, and there's, there's, again, there's a little magic in it, I guess. It is. If you, uh, yeah, if you want to cry a little, but then just feel generally better about everything <laughs> about society, yeah, about <laughs> society, about people, you know, airplanes, yep. farmers, fields, you name it. I, I, I think you, you watch it. I don't want to plug it too shamelessly, but Paul's a, Paul's a dear friend. But uh, it's uh, it, it's it cuts right to the, the core of, of, you know, why we love this kind of flying. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Now, and you were in a, another uh, movie, uh, Mission Dawn Patrol, where you flew from Colorado to Ohio in a replica Fokker. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, we also we of course we brought them to Oshkosh one year, and then uh, in Dayton, Ohio, they have uh, they've done it every other year. Uh, they do a World War One show where people flying in World War One replicas. And uh, so one year, the Vinajero Flying Museum from Colorado decided to fly. They had a Fokker D7, a Fokker triplane, and a Fokker D8, wow. and asked me to fly the Fokker D8. So we took the three Fokers, uh, which again we also had at Oshkosh, I think in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, and flew them from Colorado uh, all the way to Dayton and back with. Uh, uh, various adventures and uh, the, unfortunately the D7 ended up on its back on the way home but uh, but not hurt too bad but yeah that was uh, that was quite a fascinating experience and both of those things you know the barnstorming thing and the the Mission Dawn Patrol thing the other interesting thing of course is going going cross country with your friends really if you get four or five or three or whatever uh, that really can be a blast flying in formation and seeing the country and and the open cockpit airplanes you really you, you can smell the the crop sometimes the corn or whatever the crop is below you and or the cow manure sometimes <laughs> uh, but it's a great it's a great way to view the world uh, I always tell people Stephen Wright I don't know if you remember the comedian Stephen Wright oh yeah and uh, he the deadpan comedian and one of his jokes was he said I have a map of the United States it's life size. 
And I tell people, <laughs> I, I have a map of the United States and it's life size. I've flown in all 50 states in pre-1950 airplanes. That's kind of my claim to fame. I don't, I don't know there's anybody. There's a lot of people probably have flown in all 50 states, but I've done it in, 19, in pre-1950 airplanes in each state. So uh, well, That's amazing. It, uh, I mean, the lower 48 is one thing, but, uh, but to get to those last two, that's yeah. especially Hawaii, yeah. that's challenging. What did you fly in Hawaii that well, was that old? We went to Hawaii in uh, let's see, uh, 2012 was the, it was the year I turned 50, and it was the that was the 50th state that I'd visited. I had there were still a few I hadn't flown in at that point, but uh, but we went to Hawaii in February of 2012, and I wanted I just wanted to fly. I didn't really want to fly anything old. I wanted to fly, and I called up. We were in Oahu, and I called up on the North Shore. Uh, I can't think of the name of the Dillingham Airport on the North Shore. Uh, they had an FBO list, and I called up, and they had uh, some kind of modern fiberglass airplane, and they were $300 an hour or something. I thought, holy cow. And so they had another – there was another name listed, and I called up and talked to the guy, and he said, well, I'm mainly just – I do fuel. I said, do you have any airplanes? And he said, well – I have a Navion and you know, I might be into, you know, when you two pilots talk, I think sometimes you can kind of tell if the other person kind of knows what he's talking about. Right. So anyway, the upshot was I went up there and he had a 1946 Navion or 47, 46, 47. And, uh, he said, uh, yeah, you can, I mean, obviously he went with me, uh, and Julie went with me, but we flew around to Wahoo in a Navion. And so, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. See Pearl Harbor from the air. We didn't go over Pearl Harbor, but we went up to the gap in the hills where we could look down and, and see it off in the distance a little wow. bit. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty fascinating. That was neat. And then in Alaska, uh, Al Sticks and the guys at Creve Corps hired me to fly a, a 1940 Waco UPF-7 from Anchorage back to St. Louis back in 1992. Oh, my gosh. And so that was, yeah, that was my Alaska thing. That was quite a trip. <laughs> what, what time of year was that? It was June. I think it was around June 7th yeah. that I went to Alaska. I was working for Kermit at the time uh, in Miami, so I flew to St. Louis and then uh, flew to Detroit and then up to Anchorage. Uh, went out and, and uh, looked at the airplane. I have to say it was uh, – if you talk to the guys at Creve Corps that were there, uh, when I arrived, they were a little slack-jawed. It was probably the rattiest airplane I've ever flown. <laughs> <laughs> and it was 3,600 miles. But it, it flew hands – I went 100 miles an hour and flew hands off. But, man, the it had duct tape that had been on the wing so long that duct tape had white dope over the top of it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it just – it was really it, – it, it, needed, it needed a restoration. But it was flyable. And as I said, it went 100 miles an hour and – and flew hands off and uh, but you had to fly through the Yukon and and Saskatchewan and British Columbia and uh, it was uh, it was a fantastic experience that's unbelievable so you did a uh, you did a TV show that some uh, some people out there might uh, might remember uh, it's a reality competition show called Junkyard Wars and can you can you relate that experience a little bit tell us what it was like to do yeah, that my contribution to, to reality TV <laughs> was Junkyard Wars. And it was fun. And uh, if people don't know the premise, the, the normal Junkyard Wars show, uh, they had they take a team of three people and they would uh, pair them up with an expert who knew about whatever the subject they were going to do. They were going to build a submarine or a trebuchet or something like that. And they had one day to build it from stuff that they'd find in a junkyard. And so that was Junkyard Wars, or they have competing teams. It was Junkyard Wars. The show that we did was a special for the Centennial of Flight. It was 2002, and they aired in 2003. Uh, they had teams from France, from England, and from the United States. And we had two days to build a flying airplane that was supposed to be a replica of an airplane from your country from the Pioneer flight era, uh, you know, in, in, in two days. And, but, but we were all four were supposed to be, they didn't have an expert. They lost a little bit of attention. I think there was always tension between the teams and the experts. We all four knew each other. Each team had four people on it. Uh, uh, Ken Kellett and Paul Stesowitz from, uh, from Kermit Weeks place were, uh, the two, uh, two of the other guys. And then Ken's brother, who was from Colorado was the fourth guy. So it was the four of us and, uh, teams from France and teams from England. And we flew out to California and they they actually, uh, you know, I mean, it won't be revealing too much, I think. Ken was our team leader, and he had to submit a list of required materials in advance so they could make sure the stuff was in the junkyard that we really needed. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine piles of steel tubes and stuff to build uh, <laughs> to build an airplane. Here's some 4130 and some Dacron that people <laughs> right. just threw they away. And... A propeller, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And it was and here in this dryer. Right, right. They gave us the same engine, but it was in a it was in a giant junkyard up north of Van Nuys. Uh, they had they had 
fenced off a section of an actual junkyard that they used for filming the show. And we had two days, which was supposed to be, they were supposed to be eight hour days on TV. They were eight hour days. In reality, we got there early in the morning and they took our watches away because they didn't want us to know how long it was because <laughs> uh, they were, they were probably 14, 15 hour days. And, and at the end of the two days, you had to have, you didn't have to actually have a ready to fly airplane. You had to have an airplane that looked like it was ready to fly. And then we had a couple more days to do engine hookups and stuff like that. Uh, but so we, we built a 1911 Walden monoplane, which was, uh, looks a little bit like a Curtis pusher, except it's a monoplane. And so that was, that was our thing. The French built a Blériot. The, the Brits actually cheated a little bit. They basically built a 1920s primary glider and put an engine on the front of it. Uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, it, it flew the best and they won the prize, but, uh, but we built a Walden monoplane that was pretty cool. Uh, they, they, I was elected to be the pilot. I told everybody I was the only single one, so I had to be the pilot. <laughs> but uh, we filmed it on a dry lake bed up in uh, somewhere up around Mojave somewhere. And, uh, you know, it was, it was another interesting thing, all of that media kind of stuff. I, I worked on a couple of TV commercials and another movie, and uh, it's all really interesting to see how they how they do that and work with directors and producers and stuff. And uh, it, was, uh, it was an interesting thing, and I think it made a pretty good TV show. Uh if somebody sits and watches the episode now, I mean, you said it's got to look like an airplane in two days and that they, they, they sort of compress the time frame a little bit. Um, but if somebody watches that episode without knowing any context of the backstory, are they getting at least a reasonably accurate view of what uh, what happened? Or, or would you say it's more contrived than that? Uh, I, there was a little bit of contrived, but it, I think it was a reasonably accurate thing. Yeah, I think it was a reasonably accurate thing. I was kind of surprised. You know, the airplanes actually had airworthiness certificates. I mean, we built them really in four days. We built an airplane from scratch. I mean, the, the pile of parts maybe were there. I expected I mean, they had a DAR come out to issue the airworthiness certificates. Really? I thought it was going to be some 87-year-old guy that had nothing to lose. And it was a pretty young guy who was signing <laughs> these things. <you> know? <laughs> but, of course, as soon as the filming was done, they took the airworthiness certificates and ripped them up. But uh, oh, wow. But yeah, it was it was generally pretty realistic. The the stuff they showed was pretty much what what happened. It was interesting too. They you were mic'd. You had it. You were wearing a mic all the time, and you you tended to forget that you were mic'd. And when we started doing taxi tests, and again, it, you can imagine it was a tremendous hurry to try to get everything done. And we finally got the engine running. We started doing taxi tests, and the 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 airplane that we built common with a lot of airplanes of that era it only had down aileron cables there was no up aileron cable when you were flying the wind blew the ailerons up to level and then you could pull one down but you couldn't pull the other one up and that was typical the problem is and this actually happened to cole palin in one of his airplanes a uh, similar thing so the aileron cables are are very slack when the airplane's at rest and they have big loops in them well the first time i did a high-speed taxi test and they had a pickup truck going next to me with a camera crew in it filming the high-speed taxi test uh the the when the aileron cables came up tight they wrapped around one of them the one on the left side wrapped around the throttle and held it full and oh. I couldn't throttle back. And as the airplane got faster, we didn't have the wings braced as much as we should have. One of the wings started to twist, and the other wing started to come off the ground, and the airplane started to swerve towards the pickup truck. And, you know, I finally managed to pull hard enough on the throttle to slow down and, and get back on the wheels and get everything safe. Uh, we went back to the hangar, and I said to the guys, holy cow, you know, I was talking. I forgot they were listening. And so the, <laughs> you know, the, the producers came to me, and I, they didn't actually show it really in the film. They showed us talking about it a little bit, but uh, – but, yeah, it was interesting that people were listening all the time. You had to be careful what you said. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier uh, you also did a little of that work in a commercial. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the GE Jack Engines commercial? Yeah, that was a that was a fun commercial. That was, uh, I think, again, I think it came out well. It was another Centennial of Flight thing that we filmed in 2002 uh, that aired in 2003. It was for uh, General Electric. And the idea of the commercial, I think you can still find it on YouTube. In fact, I think you can find the Junkyard Wars on YouTube. But, uh, but, the, but the GE commercial uh, was filmed on a beach near Santa Maria, California. Supposed to be the Wright brothers. Uh, they had built a, a kind of a shed like the Wright brothers had in Kitty Hawk. And, and it was, again, with Ken Kellett because he had a replica 1903 Wright flyer that he had built. And Paul Stasiewicz was another one of the crew again that time. So we, we, they flew us out. We stayed at a nice old hotel in Santa Maria. We put the 1903 Wright flyer together, uh, spent several days filming it. The producer was a guy named Joe Pitka, who uh, was a very famous uh, 
TV commercial producer had done uh, uh, advertisements for uh, the Super Bowl ads and for Budweiser and stuff. But uh, the but the premise of the thing it's it's black and white. Uh, there's a Johnny Cash song playing. Uh, Come fly away in my aeroplane. I think is the Johnny Cash song, and uh, black and white showing the pulling the 1903 Wright Flyer out of the hangar and the announcers talking about aviation and stuff. I think. Uh, and then at the end, just before the Wright Flyer comes off, the black and white fades into color. And when they pull back on the Wright Flyer. Uh, there's a GE jet engine mounted on the top of it, and it zooms <laughs> off into the sky, and you know zooms up to 20,000 feet. And so, uh, so that was that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, another interesting uh, thing. And then I also worked on a commercial for Ancestry.com where uh, they had a, they had a replica Jenny. It was based at Chino. It was a, a reduced size, like a two-third scale Jenny. We filmed at Camarillo, actually, in California. And the idea was a kind of a Twilight Zone thing where it's a World War I pilot flying over Los Angeles and he lands on a street and uh, taxis up to a house and gets out and goes up to the door and his grandson answers the door and they look at each other and then it's Ancestry.com and they show the, the family tree kind of thing. And, and that was really interesting. We flew out of Camarillo, as I said. Uh, there was a helicopter pilot named Rick Schuster flying the camera helicopter, a very, very, very experienced guy. Uh, Mike, Mike Patlin, who's a well-known aerial coordinator, kind of handled the thing and uh, uh, still a good friend. But we, we flew out around near Camarillo, and I can remember the helicopter passing under one point about, oh, I don't know, it seemed like 20 or 30 feet. I could see the rotor blades coming out in front of the wings and thought, yeah, I'm kind of frozen on the stick. Don't make any moves, you know. But, but again, the finished commercial came out pretty neat. They had a, uh, a movie set. Uh, actually on the site of the old Northrop plant in the middle of Los Angeles where they had the houses that you always hear about where the house is only 10 feet thick and it's just a facade and you know there's bushes all over the place and people walk over and they pull a bush out of the ground and move it over there and you know everything's fake and current uh, road so we we took the the replica Jenny apart and moved it there and taxied up and down the road and uh, that that one actually came out pretty neat too and of course, the food. I don't know if you've ever been on any kind of these sets, but uh, the food is fantastic. That's probably some of the best part about working with with the movie crews and TV crews is the food. I have to say, unlike the catering on, say, a podcast, for example. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't well, look around. Whatever you've got yeah. at your table, Andrew, uh, we'll take the credit for it. Well, it's funny. Both those commercials uh, very, very memorable. I knew that you'd worked on the GE one, and of course, it's that's nicely fortuitous as GE Aviation is uh, the sponsor of the show. So, uh, so nice little, uh, nice little shout out there. Glad to know that you enjoyed it. That the commercial went well. Otherwise, otherwise Ty would be doing some cutting. But uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't know about the ancestry one. But I've, I've seen that commercial. It's a very nicely done ad. And I remember, like my first thought looking at it, frowning. Wait a minute. I think that Jenny. That's just that's uh, that's scale. That's not full scale. What size is that Jenny? Who's yeah. is it? What's going on? Is there an number I can look up? What's the deal? You know. If I'd have been, if I'd have been an inch taller, I wouldn't have fit in that Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little tight. I'm about six two and a half, and yeah. It was a little tight, but uh, but it worked out. Oh, that's fantastic! Well, Andrew, um, gosh, there's uh, you know, looking at notes, there's so many other things we could talk about. Uh, you know, and talk about your, your flying the Lindbergh, the Brunner Winklebird, the Ryan, and things. But we are uh, getting uh, getting up against the uh, the clock here, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I have there is a question that I'm sure you've been asked a lot, but uh, put my name on the list of those who've always wanted to ask it of you. And uh, and that is kind of a two-parter. First of all, is there a is there an airplane out there uh, that you would dearly love to fly that you haven't haven't had the chance to yet? So something that's that's out there now. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've never I've had quite a few Warbird rides, but I've never I've got a half hour in a T twenty eight and. Uh, you know, I've flown a lot of the trainers, the PT series and stuff. I, I, if, if, if I win the lottery, I'm going to buy a Spitfire. That's <laughs> 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 probably going to be the first purchase. I love to fly a Spitfire. Uh, been around them a little bit. Uh, I got to sit in the one at Shuttleworth when we were there, when we were filming Flyboys in 2005. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, the, the two that come to the top of my mind are the young Meister, love to fly a young Meister, and I would love to fly a Spitfire, I'd have to say. Well, when I win the lottery, I'm buying a ride in your Spitfire. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, the, gas is, uh, the gas, at least, is on me. Okay, so uh, so we got a Spitfire and a young Meister. we got a young Meister hanging in the museum, Chris. We do, you know, we couple, do. About some bolt yeah. cutters and a we could train and let's, uh, let's talk when you hit the lottery. We'll yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> After a mysterious and substantial donation <laughs> yeah. to the EA Museum, there's an airplane rolling out the back door for some reason. 
Um, okay, so now the uh, maybe the harder part of the question, uh, I would expand it to say any any type in history, anything extinct, anything out there that that doesn't exist or wouldn't be possible, but. But boy, if you if you won all of the lotteries forever, <laughs> and you could just bring something back, anything out there? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, Northrop Gamma, Curtis Condor, any? Uh, you know, I mean, the, the temptation is to say the, t- the temptation is to say all of them. But uh, <laughs> I, I did give couple... you an infinite amount of money. That's that was my problem. Yes. <laughs> right, right. There's a, there's a couple of ones that you know the 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 Curtis Schneider Cup racers. Oh, the yeah. biplane, the Curtis R. Is it the R3C? I can't remember the exact designation. There's one in the Air and Space Museum that Jimmy Doolittle flew. Yes. Uh, either the, the land plane version or the seaplane version. Uh, that would be a kick to fly. Some of the Golden Age air racers. Uh, I'd love to fly a Weddell Williams or, uh, you know, Ike or Mike, uh, some of those kind of airplanes. Uh, those are really the ones that come most to mind. Uh, I guess it's something like that. I'm, I'm sure there's others. I, I'm, you know, when, as soon as we stop talking, I'll think of 10 others. But, uh, <laughs> well, we'll save those for, for part two. <laughs> right, right. So what's, uh, what's next for you? Do you have projects that you're actively working on right now? Any, anything you're building? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I bought a I bought a Traveler, a 1928 yeah. Traveler, last May. It hadn't flown in 15 years. It was up in New York. A friend of my dad's had restored it uh, around 1980. Uh, I've been doing a lot of barnstorming with Dewey Davenport, if you know of Dewey down in Ohio. Oh sure. Uh, he's got a new he's got a new standard, and he's got a uh, uh, Traveler also. And uh, if you've been on his YouTube channel, you've seen some of our goofy videos that we made. But but I really enjoy doing the barnstorming thing, taking people for biplane rides, and you know. Almost every person that climbs out of the biplane has a smile on their face. And so I wanted to do that back here in Virginia. So I, I bought this Traveler, and it's within about a week flying again. We did a fresh engine and a lot of work done to it. But next week or the week after, it should fly again. And so this summer, I'm hoping to uh, barnstorm the Traveler around uh, Virginia here. Uh, that's fantastic. Well, in we... fact, I'm hoping to bring it to Oshkosh this year, too. I, really? I, I, I'm hoping to, yeah, hoping to bring it to Oshkosh this year. Well, keep us posted. We'd sure, uh, we sure love to see it. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us today. It's been uh, it's been great to have you and catch up and go into a little bit of detail on some things out there. Um, hopefully, uh, people were writing down some notes and they've got some movies to go watch, some commercials to go look up on uh, on YouTube. <laughs> got to see the and uh, and head over to Dewey Davenport's channel to see uh, see you guys barnstorming. Uh, that's excellent. And uh, and again, hope to see your travel air uh, here this summer in just a few months. Sounds good. Yeah, be here before we know it. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks again, Andrew, and thanks as always to everybody out there listening. Uh, Thanks for the uh, feedback that keeps coming in, the reviews on iTunes, the comments on the blog posts at inspired.ea.org, the email to feedback at ea.org. All that stuff comes in and keeps us going and uh, helps us keep bringing you this show. So with that, we look forward to talking to you the next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. 